Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer, thanks for joining me. And a lot of you have asked, why haven't I looked at EML payments given what's been happening to the company? So on a day when EML payments uh, share price has risen about 12%, after a run of horrors, including the resignation of the CEO, which didn't help the share price, we talked to a significant shareholder in Ron Shamgar of Taman Asset Management to see what the hell's going on with this company and is there any sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Then we talked to Raymond Chan of Morgan's about the energy sector. Is it too late to buy energy stocks? And if so, what company should you buy if you supports the idea of sticking with energy. And then we talked to Paul Ryan of PropTrack. This is a division of REA Group. And we ask him, he's the chief, the chief economist there, we ask him what he thinks is going to happen to house prices going forward. Very insightful interview from an informed young bloke. So that's the program for the night. Let's go and kick off with Ron Shamga of Taman Asset Management. Ron, thanks for joining us. Hey, Peter. Yeah. So, good to have, good to be yeah, back. Yeah, same here, mate. Now, the, the reason why I wanted to get you on the show, in the last time I spoke to you, you talked about you know, being a significant holder of EML shares. And, and after that, the, the company seemed to be on a, a nice rise after a, a real roller coaster ride ever since the coronavirus crash of the market. And I thought maybe you could talk people through why the company has struggled and what the outlook might be under the, the new CEO as well, because ultimately you have to make a decision about whether you're going to keep holding and trusting that this company can make a comeback. So why don't you talk, talk us through why you like the, the company and why you increased your position until, I guess, recent developments? Yeah, sure. Look, um, obviously, um, EML payments definitely been a bit of a volatile stock in the last few years. I think if you go back just to pre-COVID, end of 2019, they were really mostly a, a gift card in shopping malls business around the world, and they were doing okay. But then they um, announced the acquisition of the European business PFS, which really gave them, uh, you know, that more sexy, reloadable type. Um, payment cards um, that wasn't as cyclical and sort of dependent on retail sales as the yep. gift cards. So the market really liked that. Uh, and then as we know, COVID hit. So that impacted EML significantly in terms of their uh, gift card sales. People obviously went going out and shopping in malls. And, and, of, and uh, eventually they, they actually, I think, you know, the management and the board back then renegotiated the PFS acquisitions quite well. I think they bought it for a good price. And during 2020, um, as things recovered, the stock started to recover. Uh, but what happened was um, PFS uh, money license, where they issue all these programs, uh, was sitting in the UK and the UK went through Brexit. So uh, EML had to have an e-money license in Europe. And so they had to transition all the programs in Europe to another uh, regulator, and they chose the Irish regulator, the CBI. And unfortunately, that was the biggest mistake that EML has made. Management has acknowledged it because unfortunately, the Central Bank of Ireland has been a real handbrake on this business. They're not willing to let EML uh, you know, issue programs for a lot of these up-and-coming fintechs and all kinds of innovative 
you know, fintech businesses in Europe that, you know, want to issue different programs and they're making it very difficult for EML. And so as these programs went from UK to the CBI over late 2020, early 2021, and, you know, and they were growing fast, the CBI suddenly uh, realized, hang on, we've got these billions of dollars that are coming through us uh, from this company and we don't know exactly what's going on. So they really um, started to look into it and they just decided that they're not, they're not willing to take any risk and they issued this letter to EML. At the time, the CBI wasn't even aware that EML is a listed company. Um, so. You know, I think that's really what happened. And I think that the directors and management at the time did the right thing. As soon as they found out, they told the market, uh, as we know, there is a class action against them, but they've really done nothing uh, wrong here. Uh, maybe you could argue that they're good at giving all the bad news and then they're not very good at giving any good news. Um, <laughs> but that's a different, that's a different story. <clears throat> so obviously um, that happened in May. 2021 last year and just before that they did do another acquisition uh, of a company called Centennial and they have an open banking business called Newapay and, and that gives them that sort of also also future growth optionality in the open banking segment which is fast growing but still in its early days and um, and then obviously we had the CBI issue in May the stock plummeted and since then really over the last 12 months and they've been trying to appease the CBI uh, through this remediation program. And, you know, and obviously that uh, put a, a limit or a ceiling on how much they can grow. And on top of that, they couldn't grow. But on top of that, they had to add a significant amount to their cost base. Again, in terms of regulatory checks and so on that the CBI wanted. So when you can't grow your top line and your cost base goes up, we all know what happens and your profit gets crunched. And so this is the downgrade that we've seen come through um, more recently, uh, which saw the stock, you know, um, fall from 250 to a dollar 50 or, or thereabout. Mm. Um, and then, as we know, just before that, there was some takeover interest in the business uh, by private equity Bain um, and that fell through. Um, and there has been some rumors recently of maybe some other approaches. Now, as we know, on Monday, um, uh, Tom Cregan, which was really the face of EML, he's been the MD, you know, the last 10 and a half years, he's taken this business from nothing to where it is today, which is a global business, profitable. And he decided to resign quite abruptly. And I think investors panicked um, for two reasons. One is, Obviously, a lot of people backed him for many years, including us. And so some people just, you know, capitulated and just uh, gave up. And I think the other reason is usually when a CEO resigns abruptly and a company doesn't reaffirm guidance, uh, investors always think the worst. And obviously, investors believe that maybe the company is going to downgrade guidance again. Hmm. Um, now, we, we don't believe so. Um, I think... You know, you could look at you could look at it two ways. I mean, Tom leaving, I think it's good and bad. So, if you look at the bad part, you know, it's like I said, there's a bit of uncertainty in terms of uh, the new CEO uh, Emma Shand. She joined the board in September last year, and so she's not a complete newbie, if you want to call her that. Uh, she kind of knows the business. Um, you know, speaking to the company, 
Uh, I think she she could be she could be good, and the market might like her over time. She's obviously got experience, um, you know, being uh, uh, you know on sitting on working with Nasdaq on the regulatory board, so that should be good with with handling the CBI issue, mm, right. and also I think more importantly, I think part of the reason that Tom uh, left is that this is really a business that sixty percent of its revenues are coming from Europe, and sitting in Australia just doesn't work. And I think Tom just, you know, didn't really want to travel as much to Europe. Um, so she is going to be based in London, which is really good, I think, for, for EML, having the CEO, you know, where most of the business is. And um, I also think that, you know, you could argue that Tom, um, you know, although he built, took this business to where it is, you could argue that some of those acquisitions maybe, you know, weren't the, the right ones because at the end of the day, you know, you look at the share price, uh, the, you know, shareholders who uh, haven't sold along the way haven't made much money. So you could argue that he didn't really deliver. Yeah. And so, you know, having someone new come in uh, is a positive. Yeah. The, the Bank of Ireland decision clearly was something that, you know, he has to take responsibility for as well as the board. Um, wasn't, wasn't there also some problem um, didn't the Bank of Ireland, Central Bank of Ireland, actually have some problem with some of the the, the, the transactions of uh, the, the company that they took over? Yeah, no. So, so initially, uh, the CBI claimed that uh, there could be potential uh, sort of AML, anti-money laundering, yeah, okay. and fraud instances. But after after going through the audit, uh, they couldn't find anything really. And hmm. um, so that that's not the issue. It, it's really just the CBI not willing to, um, you know, uh, regulate uh, programs that involve, you know, fintechs and so on. So, hmm. you know, having this cap on their growth is the biggest issue. Now, look, um, if you just look two weeks ago, EML announced a, a sort of a, a stimulus program with the Corius, which is essentially a, a Spanish version of like Australia Post. Yeah. They're a big, big company. They announced a $300 million stimulus package, which they'll send out half a million of these uh, digital debit cards issued by EML. So EML can obviously grow and there's a big opportunity out there. But as they also announced in that uh, contract announcement is that pretty much that amount of money will, will sort of make them reach that ceiling, that, that limit on their growth with the CBI for the next six months. So in a way, it was also a negative bit of news because that CBI issue is still there. It sounds like they're, they're, they've got more problems than Speed Gordon. And uh, um, your position, are you, are you, uh, you going to remain a shareholder? Have you taken the opportunity to buy more at a lower price to dollar cost average your overall holding of EML? Yeah, look, we, we bought more in the, in the low 90s. I mean, if you look at it, you know, it was $350 million market cap. Uh, we, we think they'll hit guidance of around 50, mid 50s EBITDA. Um, it doesn't have any net debt, so it's probably a net cash position. Um, you know, I think the CBI issue will be resolved. I do think they will eventually go to another regulator like the Spanish one, for example. Uh, once that issue is resolved, this is a really great growth business. It's profitable. Next year, it's going to uh, probably make about $50 million in, in free cash because 
a lot of these dormancy fees that they had this year won't convert to cash until next year. And we're talking about $15 million in dormancy fee revenue. So that will kick in next year. So next year will be an amazing uh, cash generating year. And I think that we've been urging management and the board to announce a buyback ASAP or even pay dividends because I think that's really important to restore confidence to the stock. And also it just makes a lot of uh, financial sense to, to buy back shares at these levels. And, and this could be another reason that Tom left. I think there was a disagreement at the board level about doing that. I think Tom was supportive of capital management and you know, knowing me knowing from speaking to the chairman, it seemed that he was quite reluctant to do it. And I don't know why. Okay. Well, you know, this is a, a controversial company. And uh, if people want to invest in it, uh, despite the fact that you think the outlook for next year is looking good, who knows what can happen with EML, but you got to keep your fingers crossed. I, I would say one more thing. Yeah. I would add one more thing is that, um, as we know, interest rates are rising fast. Bank of Canada raised rates by 1% last night, and we, we know that the US will raise rates potentially by 1% next week. Uh, this is really beneficial for EML. So, you know, um, I think I, I know they've got their issues, but they still manage a couple of billion dollars of clients' funds and they get to keep those interest rates as they go up. So that will be a big contributor to profits in the next year or two. And uh, I think that's a really good uh, tailwind. Yeah. And I noticed that the uh, share price is up today about, Andre, can you whack it over? It's about 12%. Yeah, it's up about 12.3%. Did you drive that share price up today? <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not that powerful, but yeah, hopefully they reaffirm guidance and announce a buyback soon. So okay. um, that would be positive. Okay, Ron, thanks for joining us. That's Ron Shamgar from Taman Asset Management. My next guest on the program is Raymond Chan from Morgan's. And Raymond wants to talk about the outlook for energy and what's the best way of playing it. Good to see you, mate. Yeah, good to see you, Peter. Thanks for invitation. Yeah, fine. Now, before we get to energy, just talk about the overall market. What's the, the house view on what's likely to happen to the overall market um, in the second half of this year, which we're in now? Yeah. The, the first hurdle most people would believe is the upcoming reporting season in just about two weeks time. Um, at the moment, we are seeing very little concerns revision hmm. um, uh, going into re reporting season, which seems to be unusual. And that's, that's, that's why I think the, the, the number one risk at the moment is um, it looks like to be a uh, earning downgrade uh, cycle for the FY23 numbers. It appears to be too high still. Uh, the moment of truth will come out in about two weeks time when the reporting seasons come out. With the reporting season, usually it's the best quality company. I don't know why, but it's usually the best quality company reported first, especially in the first two weeks. And then you know, and then followed by 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 the others. Mm. Uh, so I would keenly uh, I would keenly look at you know uh, those results. So that's the first thing. However, I take a step back. I always look listen to uh, our strategist uh, view on the market. You know, in in, in a sense of fair value. Okay. okay. Given all, all the you know interest rate high, um, 
consensus numbers, all that. The fair value for the A A6200 still around 7,100 points. So based on where the A6200 is trading today, you know, we are about 8% below the fair value. So if you ask me, you know, how do I think about the market? I think the market is attractive, but it's not, it's not big bargain because whenever we see a, a bargain in the market is, you know, when we are over 10% discount uh, from the fair value. Mm. But of course, you know, the viewer may say, hey, your fair value could, could go down uh, uh, with the earning downgrade. Yes, that, there's, there's some risk of that happening. But equally, the way we calculate our fair value is we, we are not only using the consensus earning number, but we're also using the discount rate. And we factor in quite an aggressive rate hike from the central bank. Mm. So, so our, our bond yield assumption already high. Um, so any any movement uh, uh, where the central bank become less hawkish um, will likely to benefit our, our our fair value. Okay, great. All right. So, therefore, from where we are now, um, you wouldn't be surprised to see an eight percent improvement in the index by year's end. Yeah, exactly. And the we 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 try to explain fair value in the way that the fairly the fair value should be where the market value trade today uh but of course you know uh give it a year time i i don't i don't see a big risk uh we're going back to the seven thousand one hundred point despite the fact that i know there's there's a lot of um, a negative noise and concern about the market at the moment okay so let's go and talk about energy um we saw prices they got over 120 didn't they and I, I saw some bold forecasts. One, one guy had about 320 US dollars an ounce and uh, I'd like to know what he was smoking. But still, uh, you think there's still value in the energy sector despite the fact it's been a good performing sector? So I look at oil is in terms of um, the event. So if we all remember going from 2021 to 2022, we are all talking about the, the reopening trade. So we are all going out from the COVID. Mm. Uh, we start to see people using more vehicle. Um, we, we, we have a higher energy consumption. So at that moment, most the market was expecting the demand for oil was going to outstrip the supply. Mm. Okay, then of course we have the Russian-Ukraine situation that definitely put some of the supply away. Now, what changed the market uh, from, I guess, you know, uh, um, especially in our market, you know, from, from May onward is an aggressive uh, rate high from the central bank that actually put the expectation of demand uh, to a heart. So now actually the market thinking about increasing recession risk, mm. of course, you know, whenever there's a recession, um, the demand for oil will collapse. But of course, we are talking about risk. So the expectation for demand uh, on oil all of a sudden has gone down. However, if we purely look at the supply and demand of oil in the world, even with the lower demand, we are talking about 100 million barrel per day of demand. Uh, but the supply at the same time, you know, some of the supply disappeared from US and Russia. Our supply at the moment is also be 100 million barrel per day. So, so we are not 
going into a surplus in terms of supply. We are still pretty much balanced. However, because of the change of expectation from a very tight supply, excessive demand to a more balanced market, that's why we see the oil price collapse to uh, $100 uh, or below $100 um, uh, earlier this week. Also though, uh, another thing in play at the moment is there has been uh, a significant withdrawal of liquidity. What do I mean by that is uh, I note from the first week of July, there's a 110 million barrel of, uh, of a barrel of oil got short. So what I mean by that is one day of oil supply was short in the market. So you can tell uh, uh, either be at the, the, the hedge fund, they are, they are shorting the oil or they are simply selling the oil and repay, repay the US dollar step. So that is a lot of that is happening at the moment. And that also explains why the US dollar has been so strong. Mm. Okay, so what's your overall view of the oil price for the year ahead? And then what stock do you like or dislike as a consequence? Very good question. So enough bad news, you know, let me talk about some good news. First of all, we think in longer term, the supply of oil will remain constrained. The reason is two key, re two key reasons for that. Number one, uh, the US shale oil, after the two recent oil crash, one in 2016, the other in, in 2020, most of these US shale oil has, uh, has disappeared they no longer be able to get the finance uh, that they want. That's the first thing. The second thing is the big oil company, they stop putting money into new project. Remember with, with mining, you almost need 10 years to put, put a new project in place, to put new production in place. So when the market become more normal, uh, the, the oil supply, uh, supply will remain uh, pretty tight. So we're not too worried uh, about the long-term outlook of uh, oil price. And in terms of uh, the stock pick, we, we still favor um, Santos. So obviously Santos is about to have their operational update next week, and they're going to have their financial result on the 17th uh, of August next month. Um, one thing we like about uh, um, Santos is 93% of the production is in gas and about 7% is in oil. So they are less directly exposed to the direct movement of mm. oil price. Second of all, um, they successfully merged with oil search. I, I'm still keen to see how much how much synergy they can extract from, from oil search. One, one key point, of course, is you know oil search, uh, while major, well, all of the operations are outside Sydney, they used to have a big head office in Sydney. That will shut down. That will save a lot of money already. Uh, and in terms of you know centaurs, uh, uh, if they can extract more synergy, cost saving out of this oil search merger, I think that will will show in upcoming result. Second of all, in terms of uh, the balance sheet, is pretty strong cash flow. Yes, they still have debt, but uh, we expect the debt level will cut down quite significantly to 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 almost you know close to close to uh, net net cash in about two years time. So I think uh, Santos will be the one that, that we like going into um, the reporting season. Mm, okay. Uh, is there any other company that you uh, put forward that you think looks pretty positive as well? Well, uh, 
inside energy, inside energy, of course, you know, uh, we have a comparison with Wisai. Wisai certainly uh, has uh, improved um, the um, economy of scales and in terms of uh, the operation and also cash flow uh, post merger with uh, um, the BHP petroleum business. Mm. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, Wisai will also do well despite the fact that you know uh in the portfolio whether you 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 whether you want to hold two energy stocks so you know among two of them we, we favor santos a little bit better mm. at this stage so that's in the energy sector but outside of energy sector you know again our our whole thinking is going into the reporting season what we like you know we like the, the lottery corporation tlc a, a demerger from uh, from TEPCOP, uh, we think um, the earning will, will meet expectation. Um, on the flip side, we are less uh, 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 bullish on uh, on the banks. Uh, yes, we think rising interest rate will eventually benefit the banks, but uh, lately I can see a, a very strong competition for term deposit. You know, uh, some of the bank offer one year um, term deposit rate of three point seven five percent, which I think is pretty competitive mm. and there's a lot of this competition going on at the moment yeah and so so i i i, I feel much of this net interest margin improvement can can be eaten away by a pretty heavy competition in um uh in in the deposit okay raymond thanks for joining us mate thank you for the time Well, joining me now is the economist from PropTrack, which is a division of REA Group, and they, they monitor what's going on in the property market. At the moment, a lot of people are worried about price falls, just to see how bad it's been. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Give us an idea of what's happening to um, prices over the past month, and I guess even since the beginning of the year. So we've seen uh, since the start of the year, we've seen price growth slow dramatically. Um, now we have seen prices start to fall and prices have fallen, particularly in places like Sydney and Melbourne um, and in the ACT where prices are the highest. Uh, and now those price falls can be typified by basically originally earlier in the year it was on expectations of higher interest rates. And now we've seen price falls off the back of higher interest rates flowing into higher borrowing costs. So um, we've even seen a kind of the darling market of Brisbane record its first very small fall in June as well. Mm. It, it kind of makes me think that Brisbane's uh, period of rising and will end up being shorter than other states uh, because cities, because they, they were behind, weren't they, for a while, Brisbane? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the context of these price falls is that, that they are very large at this point. So we're looking at um, price falls in Sydney and Melbourne so far are something like one and a half percent, which is which is not very much. Um, but it does signal that prices are on the way down. And um, if you look at places like Brisbane, they it, Brisbane in particular benefited from all the things that we saw um, change in the pandemic. Um, in the housing market. So um, preference shifts towards larger homes, preference shifts towards affordable locations and preference shifts towards lifestyle locations. And obviously Brisbane's known for having having nice weather. So um, Brisbane has kind of ticked all of those boxes and we've seen, even though we normally see people move from south to north um, to southeast Queensland, we've seen that kind of be turbocharged over the past two years. Um, yeah. So we're kind of still quite bullish on 
Brisbane and Southeast Queensland in general, um, we think those markets are likely to outperform. But that big weight of interest rate increases is affecting even markets like that. Yeah. And so I guess you're arguing probably the falls in Southeast Queensland will be less than other state, other cities and states. That's, that's our expectation, yeah. And then the other kind of market that's benefited from this in particular has been regional markets, which are up 50% since the pandemic, and Adelaide increasingly. It kind of had a slow start to the kind of the boom that we saw across the country, but now yeah. it's it's still the market still recording solid growth. So 0.4% yeah. um, up in, in June. So, Yeah. And, and is it because it has never been an overpriced market, a kind of a steady riser, but not a boom riser? Is that, is that help Adelaide? Definitely. I think in, in all the time I've been following property, um, Adelaide's never been an exciting market to watch. So it's it's now now that it's kind of topping the, the charts or it's close to um, over the past year, it's the second strongest performing market, um, is, is quite an exciting development for Adelaide. And I think traditionally Adelaide has been able to kind of build its way out of higher prices. And what's happened here is that people have finally recognised just how much, how much value there is in Adelaide. And also there's just a, a greater proportion of people that are able to kind of use that work from home remote flexibility to um, take advantage of locations with cheaper prices and bigger homes. Yeah, I, I haven't come across this before, but someone like you may well have. I guess the coronavirus might have also made some people who were brought up in Adelaide and they were working in Melbourne and Sydney, uh, think about g going back home to have the support of the family and that sort of stuff. Are, are you seeing that kind of thing develop? Uh, absolutely. I, in fact, have a friend that um, I worked with in Sydney here um, who has just moved back to Adelaide for exactly those reasons and is now able to work remotely for his um, Sydney job. So that's yeah. definitely a factor we've seen um, supporting that market. Yeah, okay. Now, George Therano, who's a chief economist at uh, UBS, uh, featured in a story in The Australian today where he, he actually talked about the sensitivity of the price falls were the, the most he's seen. Uh, were you surprised or do you agree with George? Uh, so I think... I think the price falls we've seen are concentrated in places like Sydney and Melbourne, where people tend to take out bigger mortgages relative to their incomes, um, is, is consistent there. So people um, who are competing for properties in those markets will be more concerned about interest rate increases than in other markets. So it kind of makes sense that at the moment, the big uncertainty in the market is what will happen, where will interest rates be at the end of the year? And where will interest rates be um, in the middle of next year? And there's, yeah. there's a big divergence there between, say, major bank economists and the market. And there's kind of a one percentage point difference there. And that yeah. makes a big difference to potential buyers in Sydney and Melbourne. What's your view? Who's going to be right in the long run? And be right, Paul. It's one, one, it's one thing to make a prediction. I would, I would love to be right. Um, yeah. It'd be good I if you were. I'm personally, not. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But go for It'd it. It'd be very valuable if I if I could be right on this question. Um, no, I, I've had a poor track record on on um, the RBA's movements recently. Um, but yeah, we still favour um, major bank forecasters that that the um, cash rate will be somewhere like two point two five, two point five percent at the end of the year, rather than the market, which is expecting something like three point five percent at the end of the year. Now, the employment numbers today may change that. There was a very very strong print, so um, we'll be going back to our books and, and reassessing that. Yeah. Have you guys ever worked out like a, a model for linking, say, 1% rises in interest rates against uh, falls in house prices? 
And if so, what are, what are you expecting house prices to fall by then? So borrowing capacity and housing prices tend to match pretty closely. So um, a one percentage point increase in the cash rate reduces borrowing capacity by about 10%. Um, so that would be your kind of benchmark um, for how much price is going to move. Of course, the other side of the ledger is that but the RBA is raising rates because the labor market is performing well and the economy is performing well, mm. and they expect wages growth to pick up. So wages growth they're expecting to come through the pipeline um, kind of in the second half of this year will mean people can borrow more, which offsets that, that increase in the cash rate, um, reducing borrowing capacity. So that's where we're putting our, that's how we're benchmarking our forecast for the market. Um, so we're expecting something like 10 to 15% falls across the market over the next kind of year, 18 months. Okay. But there, there are a couple of curveballs for your models, which I presume you wouldn't have had before, unless you've brilliant, created brilliant models, Paul, and I, I guess you probably think you have. And that is the, the size of the savings that came out of COVID. You know, they kept mentioning $260 billion worth of savings locked away in a whole lot of lucky people's bank accounts. Um, and, and also the, the, the size of, of buffers that people have built up when, you know, when the interest rates fell and they kept paying, they're too immeasurable or hard things to work out, but they, they all seem to be good for actually um, working against a massive fall in house prices. True or false? I, I agree. I mean, um, I think, you know, we're starting to see articles about, you know, are people going to start to struggle to repay mortgages? Um, are there going to be kind of, you know, um, increases in arrears rates and things like that? And and the underlying thing or the thing that the, the biggest indicator that I would look at is the labor market. If people have jobs, people can continue to pay their mortgage. Um, so we're not expecting big dramatic falls in housing prices because we're not seeing big dramatic falls in economic growth and the economy. So um, while people have less to spend, they can't borrow as much as they could because interest rates are higher. We still see a really strong amount of housing demand out there. There's, there's still 50% more people on realestate.com today you seriously looking for homes um, than there were before the pandemic so that demand has to go somewhere but people can't spend as much as they could six months ago yeah okay i'm going to throw a, another couple of really hard questions at you um uh, one is how many people have home loans out there and what percentage got those home loans over the last two years and why i ask that question is those people, though they borrowed at low interest rates, certainly paid high prices. Everybody else probably borrowed at high prices and all of a sudden enjoyed lower interest rates. And so they're, they're not really you know, facing negative equity and whatever. That's a really important issue for how bad the market could be and, and what kind of potential slowdown we have because it's only a, a group of probably newer borrowers who really are going to feel a pressure. And they won't feel a pressure until probably it gets to 2.35% cash rate or something like that. Have you thought about that, Paul? Yeah, we have. So um, this, the stylized facts here are that um, if you think about all households across Australia, um, you can roughly break them into thirds. So a third of households rent, a 
third of households own their house outright, don't have a mortgage, and a third of households have their mortgage. Now, um, looking at the recent data, um, something like a third of those people with mortgages um, took out those those mortgages over the past couple of years. Now, there's a big increase in, in people refinancing because of those really sharp fixed rates that we saw um, throughout the pandemic. Um, so it's a little higher than usual, I suspect. Um, but yeah, absolutely, those new borrowers, now some of those will be borrowers that refinance or took advantage of, of new rates, yeah, but some yeah. of those will be people that bought for the first time or bought, um, uh, took out a large mortgage, and they're the ones that you might think are susceptible to these big increases in interest rates. And so, um, now firstly, most borrowers don't borrow their maximum. So if you use Commonwealth Bank's data, only 8% of people are close to their maximum when they take out a loan. Um, and the other thing is, is the buffers built into um, loan serviceability. So when a lender assesses you on a mortgage, you have to be able to repay a mortgage now um, two and a half percentage points higher than um, than the current prevailing rate. Now, we're getting up to that now as, as rates are up um, 1.25 percentage points. Um, and obviously, um, cost of living pressures are also eating into that cash buffer that some borrowers would have. But we're not really, so why we worry about those recent borrowers the most, I don't think we're at a point yet where a lot of them will be um, in a concerning situation about for their cash flow. Okay, good answer, mate. Looks like you've been doing your homework. Well done. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. And that's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. If there's a stock you want us to sort of inquire, we can do that. We can go chasing the CEO or a fund manager who's a pretty significant holder. Don't be afraid to ask us to do that and we'll try and make it happen. Also go to switzerreport.com.au if you want to know more about other shares that uh, some of our experts think are either in the buy zone or the sell zone. Thanks for joining us. See you on Monday.